13 minutes before the hour at JM in the AM. And Alan Fagan, Executive Vice President of the Orthodox Union, the OU, is with us in studio this morning here at JM in the AM. He is celebrating, and frankly, we are celebrating his fifth anniversary in this position. It is not easy with his schedule to get him in studio, but we finally designated a date. And this morning is the opportunity to speak with him live and in person. Alan Fagan, welcome, and thanks for joining us at JM in the AM. Good morning, Nachum. Five, to be here. Five years. Five years. Now, we're happy because you've given us a million opportunities over the last five years, and I thank you for that right off the bat. But in addition to that, there's a lot to celebrate in our community, and you have really overseen some incredible developments at the OU and in the, uh, in the Orthodox world. And uh, frankly, I have a whole list, and we'll go through some of them here this morning at JM in the AM. Are you, earlier this morning, we spent time mentioning to this audience that we should all carefully look at those government and public officials and how they are reacting to the recent atmosphere of anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic episodes, anti-Semitism even on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives in terms of anti-Semitic talk. Are you satisfied and is your, I guess, Department of Government Affairs satisfied with the way that our public officials are responding to this most recent crisis? I, I, I'm not satisfied at all. <clears throat> what we saw in the last round of comments by various younger members of Congress and the reaction of the leadership uh, in Congress was classic avoidance. Anti-Semitism needed to be called out. It needed to be called out separately. It needed to be called out vigorously. And that didn't happen. We were delighted that there was a resolution we were very pleased about that. We got great cooperation from the leadership, particularly the Democratic uh, leadership. I think most of them wanted to do the right thing. And then the politics of the country took over. And what we saw was a resolution that really was watered down, not in terms of how it stood up to anti-Semitism, but in the fact that it didn't call out these anti-Semitic acts and statements as a separate and virulent form of, of, of racism. All racism is wrong and needs to be called out. But what we're seeing today is a resurgence of a phenomenon uh, that uh, the likes of which uh, we have we have not seen in in uh, thank God in decades. I'm so glad we started with this because I I think it's so important to, that this audience hear your reaction to my question on this topic. They also may not realize that you have an entire department that spends day and I would argue night constantly fighting these issues and speaking with those in Washington who are influential about these and other issues. Yes. <clears throat> we have our office uh, in Washington. We also have operations in uh, six states. We tend to focus primarily 
uh, on the issue of financial sustainability for yeshivot and day schools in right. our local operations. Uh, but our office in Washington has has been fully engaged in this issue over the last uh, weeks, and we will continue to do that. Now, we we want to see coalitions, bipartisan, across the board, in speaking out against anti-Semitism, and and so we welcome the resolutions that have been passed. It's a start, but we also need to recognize that this issue is different. It's different because of history. It's different because of culture. It's different because it comes from left and right. And it needs to be treated in that way. And it's different because it's being excused in many cases. It's, it's being excused and it's hiding behind a facade of those that would quarrel with Israeli foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And so it's much, much easier now. If, if, if you utter a racial epithet, it's clear. When you talk about Israel's rights and Israel's foreign policy and how it should conduct that foreign policy, and you talk about Americans and how they support the state of Israel, those are political statements that are easy to camouflage. And I think that's what we're seeing now is those that are engaging in that kind of conduct are camouflaging it behind statements that seem to be political. And those who are refusing to call out that conduct mm-hmm. are hiding behind the fact that everyone has free speech rights and ought to be able to express themselves politically. And, and in fairness, that dividing line can sometimes be a little bit gray. Mm-hmm. And people are exploiting that grayness. Alan Fagan is here, Executive Vice President of the OU. You're, you're in this position for five years, and you might be the person best in our community to, in fact, endorse the saying that the more things change, the more things stay the same. You've seen in five years issues that are literally still being fought after half a decade later and probably will be fought over, I should say, you know, for time either immemorial or certainly a, the length of, uh, certainly a certain length of time to come. And at, the, and at the same time, you've seen a lot of new things arise. You've seen new challenges in our community nationwide and different things that our community is facing that are either facing or addressing uh, that are really key. Um, is there anything that comes to mind immediately when I ask about either the greatest accomplishment or what you're most proud of in the last five years? Wow, that's a very tough question to, uh, <clears throat> to answer. <clears throat> because you can answer it both on the micro level and on the macro level. Right. But if I had to point to the micro, and, and micro is enormously important because in the times that we're living in, we're, we're fighting for Jewish souls. We're fighting to keep our community Jewish. I think one of the things that I'm proudest of is a very small program that we began two years ago in the NCSY Colel that you know intimately and have broadcast from. We embedded in the NCSY Colel that brings together every summer hundreds of our finest young men from 
top quality yeshivas across the United States and Canada. We, we embedded 15 public school teens mm-hmm. in a machina program. We didn't know how it was going to work. We didn't know if it was going to work at all. Put 15 kids with no background whatsoever together with the strongest, most enthusiastic guys with 12 years of day school education under their belts. And it worked amazingly. They were accepted as family, and they started to learn. Of that original group of 15, three of them had never had a bar mitzvah. Three of them couldn't read Aleph Beis. That's how lost this generation is. You know, it used to be 20 years ago or 25 years ago, NCSY would would be dealing with kids who we would find in shuls, very often in conservative shuls, but they knew what Shabbos was. They knew what Yamim Tovim were. They could read. They could daven. They knew the songs. <laughs> they knew the songs. They knew the smells. They 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 were living a a a full and reasonably rich Jewish life. Now, when we go into public schools, we're dealing with kids who have never stepped foot inside a synagogue, right? Ever. Kids who've never had a bar mitzvah, and whose parents may not have, and whose parents may not have, and don't even have a bubby and a zaidi right. whose seder they went to. Right. That's how gone we're finding current teens in unaffiliated homes. So we take these fifteen guys. A courageous move for the three that have no knowledge. Courageous for them, yeah, and for you, frankly, and and and, and for us. Right. And we weren't sure what was going to what was going to happen. I can imagine. Ten of the fifteen were rising seniors; they were going to graduate right. that following year. Of the ten rising seniors, seven of them are now, right now, at this moment, in Israel, learning in yeshiva. <laughs> seven out of ten. And and I think the lesson there is that we can do this. It takes unbelievable resources and it takes the the incredible work of incredibly talented staff but no one is lost we can reach everyone and we can reach them on their terms and without being judgmental and we can open up their lives to the beauty that we all recognize the beauty of our Jewish faith and our Jewish identity. I'm so glad you noted this is one of your great accomplishments, frankly, because this is a an example. Th- these are role models, and I refer in this case to the NCSY Kolel, uh, role models for how all of us need to and can reach out to those who are completely unaffiliated. Um, how, I mean, it must have been a very uncomfortable transition for those who knew nothing about, uh, you know, who, who did not know Aleph Bays and were not, it was, was it an uncomfortable transition at the beginning, a very tough one? Or not. You know, I sat with, with all of them. They were fine. They were fine. <laughs> they, they were fine. They, when you put them together with other kids, and, and keep in mind, they're learning in the morning, they're playing ball in the afternoon, right. they're going on trips in the evening, they're following the same sports teams, they're wearing the same clothing. They have a lot in common. They've got a lot in common. At the end of the day, 
they're young Jewish teens, and they were embraced like family. You also might suspect that um, in this country, we'll leave Israel to the side for a moment, but in this country, uh, there are so many amazing distractions. When I say amazing, I mean enticing in many good ways and some in many bad ways, of course, to get the attention of teenagers. It is remarkable to think that these teens, with really everything at their fingertips, would want to dedicate themselves to Torah study in Israel or dedicate themselves to immersing themselves in you know a day of prayer and Torah study and ball and everything else at NCSY Kolel. And I think that's another thing that often blocks our, our thinking on this. We, we're always thinking, you know, why on earth would a public school kid in this country want to give up or alter their schedule from all the great things they have and, you know, and attract themselves or, or, or be part of this? And sure enough, whether we can explain it or not, the proof is in the pudding, and they go ahead and do it. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that I can explain right. it. Right. Other than uh, I, I never, until I took this job, I, I never quite understood the concept of the pintily. Right. It 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 was it was a word. <laughs> no matter how small that spark might be, and no matter how small <laughs> that spark might be, it can blaze. And it's a question of having talented people who know how to fan that flame. Uh, you, you, you know our wonderful Yarche Kala program sure. uh, in the winter where we bring together uh, public school teens from across the country, hundreds, in, in hundreds numbers, of them, yeah. who give up their Christmas break right. uh, in order to learn Torah for a week. You walk in to that room where they're sitting. It looks like a giant base medrash. And you've got hundreds of teens hunched over Svarim, and they're sitting and learning. And the sound of that room is no different than the sound of any wonderful base medrash anywhere in the country. And I'm thinking of walking over to them and saying, you know, you could be skiing in Vail right now. You know that? You could even be in the Alps probably with, your, with the way your parents vacation. Do you realize that? And you're giving up that week in order to sit and study. And, Torah. And, and they're doing it voluntarily, right. and they're doing it joyfully, and uh, <laughs> it's a wonderful thing to see. So so when, when, when you ask about things that I'm proud of, uh, on, on, on the level of person to person, I, I think that's one of the things that I'm most proud of. Uh, we've also, on, on, a, on a broader level, uh, started some wonderful new programs over the last several years. Uh, many of them uh, uh, you're intimately uh, familiar with. By the way, I should say, uh, Nachum, when I reflect on the last five years uh, and, and I think about our travels together uh, <laughs> and how much of what has happened at, at the OU over the last five years, you and the network have been not just intimately involved with, uh, but a real force in moving forward. And I remember in particular those terrible days of, of Hurricane Harvey uh, when we were trying very, very hard to do something positive for the Houston community. You were up to your eyeballs in, in, in doing that and helping us uh, uh, to raise what turned out to be uh, uh, $1.6 million for that community. Uh, all of the Chesed missions that we've now run to, to help there and in Puerto Rico and uh, uh, New Orleans and elsewhere. <coughs> Your visits every year to uh, to Yom NCSY. We've uh, we've been through uh, a, a lot uh, over the last several years, and we're deeply deeply grateful. But we've we've started some some wonderful new programming over the last few years. 
Uh, one that, uh, uh, two that I feel very, very proud of. Uh, one is our women's initiative, uh, which is creating magnificent new programming uh, geared toward uh, the women of our community, learning opportunities, leadership uh, opportunities. Last Shavuos, for example, uh, we sponsored a program uh, to make certain that there were female scholars presenting on Lael Shavuos. Uh, and it was uh, uh, met with enormous uh, success. We had 65 or 70 shuls participating uh, in, that, uh, in that program. And as a result, <coughs> we're able to expose up-and-coming women scholars uh, to shuls who had never had that opportunity. And now we get notes from those women constantly uh, saying, as a result of that, appearance. Uh, I've now gotten multiple calls to come and be a scholar in residence to give a lecture and so on. So we're very, very, uh, very, very pleased with uh, the results of our, of our women's initiative. The other thing that we've started recently is our new OU Center for Communal Research. Hmm. Uh, this is a brand new program. Uh, and, and, and here's the genesis of, of the program. W one of the things that I think I've learned over the last uh, five years uh, is that not-for-profits generally, and Jewish not-for-profits certainly among them, tend not to focus on strategic planning and strategic development of programs and policies the way a good, sound business would go about doing that. That is based on data, based on information, as opposed to managing by anecdote. Uh, and I thought that was a real gap at the OU. We, we talk about our community. You talk about it constantly. I talk about it constantly. But we talk about it very much from our own personal perspectives, mm -hmm. what we see, what we hear, people that you interview, but without having real data at our fingertips. We're now going to collect the kind of data that's necessary, necessary to evaluate our programs and see how we're doing in a, in a real objective way to figure out the parts of our programs that are working well and the parts that are not working well, to double down on those that are working well, to modify the ones that aren't based on objective data and information that we can gather. And at the same time, to better understand our community, to understand its economics, to understand its dynamics, to understand its attitudes, so that we can plan our programming out into the future by meeting the needs that we recognize, not because we happen to see it at Kiddush on Shabbos morning, but because we have real substantial data and information. So we have now uh, uh, brought on uh, a guy named Matt Williams, uh, who is an extraordinary social science researcher. <clears throat> He's about to finish his PhD at Stanford to head this effort. Uh, we have a wonderful woman, uh, uh, Dr. Shane, uh, who comes to us from Brandeis, uh, where she's a professor. Uh, we're in the process of hiring additional staff, and they will be, over the next several months, uh, beginning a whole series of studies of our community so that we can understand it better, 
and begin to make much more intelligent uh, decisions about the kinds of programs and policies that uh, uh, that we ought to be pursuing. Alan Fagan in studio, executive vice president of the OU. I'm I'm already curious, like where this could lead. Um, is there an example you can give us if we if we see that the trend numerically, you know, if the figures tell us that there's X trend, then we at the OU will pivot, you know, in in Y way. Like, could you give me an example of what you'd be looking for and what Mr. Williams and his associates might tell you that would alter things at the OU? Sure. Let, let, let me let me give you two. The first, perhaps, uh, in 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 uh, in gross. Um, some of the things that I think we really need to think about. The projections are, at least from some demographers, that by the end of this century, we're talking about 80 years from now, the Orthodox population will surpass all other Jews combined in the United States. Mm-hmm. Right now, the Orthodox population is somewhere between 10 and 12 percent of American Jewry. Now, imagine a day when the Orthodox population is the majority of American Jewry. Projections are that in 40 years, there will be more Orthodox Jews in the United States than Reform and conservative Jews combined. That's an incredible statistic. Not clear whether it's accurate. Demography is a projection. Is a is a is exactly that. It's right. a, it's a prediction. A dozen things could affect that prediction, but if if those predic- predictions hold, what are the implications of that? Of a world in which the majority of Jews in the United States are Orthodox. Just start to play through in your mm-hmm. own mind. What does that mean for us as a community? What kind of planning do we need to do as a result of that? What kind of communal planning do we need to do in terms of the growth and development of our own institutions? What kind of planning do we need to do politically to think about a world uh, where the Jewish presence in the United States is overwhelmingly orthodox? Particularly a world where Many Orthodox Jews identify uh, uh, Republican, and the rest of the Jewish world tends to identify Democratic. There's a whole lot of planning that needs to be done if the efforts that we're engaged in uh, are going to be and continue to be bipartisan efforts, certainly as they relate to Israel. And how do we start to think about what our obligations will be to the rest of the Jewish community in a world where the non-Orthodox community is no longer the majority but is now a minority community within American Jewry? What are our obligations today to be preparing for that moment 40 years from now, which sounds like a very long time. (laughs) But as we know, But as we know, it's not. (laughs) And, and certainly in the span of Jewish history, it's, it's not. Right. So, so we're, we're, we're looking down the barrel of cataclysmic changes in, in the composition of the American Jewish community. And we need to plan for that. 
I don't know that that there are organizations that spend the kind of time and effort that we want to spend thinking about those kinds of issues, about how the world is going to look five years from now, 10 years from now, or 50 years from now. And those are enormous, enormous uh, uh, obligations. Will they be able to tell you uh, about some of the things happening in our community today? I'll give you an example of what I mean. I mean, would they be able to tell you data-wise, again, only anecdotally until this point, but data-wise that there are, I don't know, uh, that there's a significant percentage of public, of Jewish public school youth in this country whose families would prefer if the kids were involved in more Jewish programming. Because if you were told data-wise that they had very little interest and it was a very small, then you would probably act a certain way. But if you were told that there's, I don't know, you know, 30% of all Jewish families in public school around the country would prefer to their kids had more of a Jewish right. than than NCSY and the, all the related activities would, would step up in a much different way, right? Sure. And those are certainly certainly the kinds of uh, uh, the kinds of studies that we want to be doing. Uh, we're not going to have enough enough staff and enough resources right. to, to do them all and to do them immediately. Uh, but certainly over the next year or two, three, uh, we hope to be doing uh, studies exactly of that type. But not just looking at the question of what parents might do or or or, or could think about uh, or might doing, want. Yeah. but also looking at what is it that captures the attention of these kids so that when we design programs we're designing them with the kids in mind just a simple <laughs> simple example sure. uh, you, you said uh, earlier and it's so true that uh, you know kids now b- behave with their fingers right um, and it's absolutely true. The amount of time mm-hmm. uh, that kids, teens, certainly, and adults, <laughs> are, and adults are spending in front of a screen uh, and punching little buttons mm-hmm. is is extraordinary. That's where they're getting their information from. And so we've just now begun uh, thinking very, very seriously uh, about all of our digital media efforts. How do we create? methods of engagement with kids that utilize the platforms that they communicate on, uh, which is almost exclusively virtual. Mm -hmm. Uh, And how do we then convert those experiences into much more meaningful face-to-face experiences? So we're going to want to look at that. We're going to want to to look at, at, at patterns of belief and attitudes toward religion. What is it in the in the religious experience that that's captivating? What is it in the religious experience that's not? Why are some people getting turned off from attending shul, and what is it that's bringing people into shul? All of those kinds of things are critical for us as 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 we think about uh, how to further the interests of the community. To me, it seems that you had this data-driven initiative in mind when you started. Would that be fair? That that five years ago you were already thinking five years down the line that at some point this has got to be implemented. Yes. Look, I I, I came from the private sector. Right. Uh, the OU has got a long and 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 uh, magnificent history of being led by rabbis. Right. Uh, that has enormous advantages. Coming from the private sector has its own advantages. And for many years, I ran one of the largest law firms in the world. Wow. Uh, and law firms run on data. Any major business 
runs on data. You can't. When I got to the OU, uh, the way we would decide whether a program was working well or not was at the end of a program, you'd get four letters from kids saying, thank you very much, you changed my life. <laughs> okay? now, and you're not minimizing that. And I'm not minimizing that right? at all. Right. I mean, that's really serious stuff, right. and it's enough to put a smile on your face that will last for months. Because that's what it's all about. Right. But it doesn't tell you whether what you've accomplished was something with those four kids or whether you've accomplished something with the 26,000 kids that we're currently working with. When, right. I, when, I, when I started at the OU, our NCSY, for example, was, was, had about 15,000 kids that they work with each year. It's been a 50% increase. It's about double. It's, now, it's now about 26,000, close to double. Uh, yeah, much more. Than the number of kids that. that we take to Israel over the summer has doubled. Right. Uh, in that five, number's in insane. five years. Uh, I'd like to see it double again in the next five. Uh, so all of that requires a a level of sophistication. Now that we've gotten as big as we've gotten, right. and, and have the number of programs that we have, requires a level of sophistication. If we don't bring to the enterprise that same kind of sophistication that a serious company would bring to the development of its own business, then I think we're shortchanging the, uh, uh, the community. The, the, the same is true in our political uh, efforts. Uh, when I started, most of our lobbying was fairly traditional Jewish organization kind of lobbying. We'd, we'd put 30 or 40 people on a bus, we'd drive up to Albany, we'd wander the halls, we'd take some pictures, we'd shake hands, and we'd say thank you very much. Uh, that doesn't work in, in if we really want to get the job done. Uh, so we now have, over the last five years, built a political apparatus with the finest lobbyists that we can hire, with grassroots get-out-the-vote uh, mechanisms in place, with a large staff, uh, uh, with the public relations machinery that's necessary to surround all of that, with pairing our lay leadership with elected officials so that they establish relationships, not just in Brooklyn and in Queens, but throughout the state. We've done all of those things, and the results have really paid off. Uh, I just came back uh, uh, late last night. I was in Albany for the last two days. So they're in the midst of their budget process now. Right. The budget will be finalized in the next several weeks. And we've been av advocating uh, for greater aid to uh, yeshivot and day schools. I think we're going to see a very substantial increase this year. Specifically for security or across the board? We're going to see a substantial increase for security. And the governor has been really at the forefront of that. We owe him an enormous amount of uh, credit and gratitude. Uh, I think we're going to see a, a significant expansion in security funding. We already have gotten uh, uh, a $60 million allocation from Homeland Security at the federal level uh, for security. Uh, but I'm talking now about direct aid to uh, yeshivot and day schools. What we've been pushing for in the last three years has been state funding of STEM education. Right. Uh, we started 
that program two years ago, 2017. Mm -hmm. The funding doubled last year, and I think we're going to look this year at more than doubling it uh, yet again. We've, we've gotten very, very good reactions in Albany uh, to this program, uh, enormously important. Uh, so we're, we're, we're just beginning to move the needle. But that also requires an effort that's well-organized, an effort that's professional, that's well-funded, and that we throw ourselves into in the same way that a serious business would throw itself into achieving a result that was really critical to its success. Alan Fagan's here, Executive Vice President of the OU. It, it, was this something, not to, be, not to bring up too sensitive a, a topic, is this something that was met with a lot of skepticism among those who were used to the old system was your new system not very new you would say just simply a little bit more corporate a little bit more organized a little bit more data driven was was that met with the with a big question mark from some of the people around the boardroom table no really no i don't think there was uh, skepticism uh i think there was skepticism not about trying it I think there was skepticism about whether we would be successful. Um, and you know as well as I do that nothing nothing breeds success like success. Right. Uh, and we got off to a very, very good start. Mm -hmm. uh, we got some good early victories. Uh, and then we were able to capitalize on that success through the help of some really extraordinary lay leaders in, in multiple communities, uh, around the state uh, and some very, very generous donors uh, who are fully behind uh, uh, this effort. Uh, so no, I don't, I don't think that there was um, uh, a lot of skepticism. In fact, I, th I think that everyone was sort of waiting, taking a deep breath and saying, we know we have to do this. We're right. just not quite sure how we go about doing it. Um, and I think that there was a real desire, not just in the political arena, but, but across the board at the OU, to professionalize our operations, to recognize that we had gotten to be so big that we had to run on a very, very different basis than we had. Does any of this affect or benefit the Kashrus department? Does any of this data-driven philosophy, I don't know, play into what the Kashrus department finds out about the kosher consumer, or about the way their products are viewed nationwide? Any of this help? Sure. Uh, you know, Kashrus was way out in front sure. of managing their business uh, uh, on a, on a data-driven basis. The technology that they use, for example, uh, in Kashrus that allows complete interaction between customers and the enormous Kashrus database. You know, if, if, you're, if you're a plant in... I don't know, Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and you're making cookies, and you want to now start a line of new cookies, right? and you've got 46 ingredients in those cookies, you can, with the press of a couple of buttons, <laughs> figure out which of those ingredients are kosher and which are not, and of the ones that are not, where you can source them, how you can source them, who manufactures them, and what certifications they have. It's... it's um, uh, really uh, uh, an extraordinary uh, uh, operation. You know, last week, we one of the broadcasts we did from Israel was at Koren Publishers. 
And we were talking about their remarkable growth. You've seen it. I mean, it's, it, compared to what they were 15 years ago, the, the, the difference is enormous. And they and one of the things that they cited were the partnerships they were able to to um, establish, and how important they realized they couldn't do it all themselves, and they established tremendous partnerships. And I'm just wondering. And I know you're obviously one of the partners, and yep. it's been amazing. That arm of the OU has been incredible over your tenure, to say the least. Uh, but I'm wondering if that's also one of the factors that you have really been able over the last five years to open up avenues to places where the organization didn't go before and to establish partnerships that allow for growth, even if it's not a 100% OU product or a 100% OU initiative. Sure. Uh, look, partnerships are absolutely critical. They're, they're critical because there are so many wonderful organizations out there doing wonderful, wonderful things. Uh and it's, it's a waste of communal resources to be reinventing the wheel every time you turn around. Uh, so we, we go in the opposite direction. We're looking to expand the programming that we have done historically, where we already have carved out iconic brands, uh, Yachad, NCSY, JLIC, uh, and so on. Those are needs that are not being met elsewhere, but at the same time, we're not going to go into areas where those needs are being met uh, uh, by others who are doing really superb work. We would prefer to partner with them, help them do what they're, what they're doing. One, one of the programs that we started um, about a year and a half ago, uh, which I think is fantastic, we call it um, the Innovation uh, Incubator. Yeah, this is a good one. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic, run by a remarkable young woman named Jenna Belzer. Uh, and what we do is to select, uh, the, the first cohort I think had uh, seven uh, groups participating, start up not-for-profit organizations in the Jewish world. The next great idea. Uh, we take those organizations that are just fledgling organizations, often with either volunteer or part-time heads. We help them grow. We mentor them. We expose them to our fundraising professionals, our communications professionals, uh, HR, accounting. Mm -hmm. We teach them how to become self-sufficient. We give them a little bit of money, uh, as seed money to help them grow. Uh, in the hopes that they will get on their feet and do the wonderful things that uh, that they're doing on a more substantial basis, so we 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 see ourselves as uh, as an incubator uh, for the totality of the Jewish world, and and there's enormous opportunity out there. Uh, we don't have to occupy every one of those spaces. We would rather partner with with others. Let me let me give you one example. Um, we have now established a wonderful partnership with JWRP. Mm -hmm. um, for your listeners who... Who were completely who independent. Know, completely independent. Right. Completely independent from the OU, an absolutely wonderful organization. They bring primarily moms uh, to Israel, unaffiliated. Uh, they take them on this incredible trip uh, through Israel. and Life-changing. And it's life-changing right. uh, for, uh, uh, for these mothers. Well, those mothers have kids. And so we partner with JWRP. When the moms go and get inspired, they're going to bring their kids to NCSY. Right. If we have NCSY <laughs> kids 
whose moms haven't been through that kind of experience. <laughs> They're going to send them to Israel. We, we send them to JWRP. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a terrific kind of partnership, and we're trying to do that uh, uh, all over, and in particular now through our reorganized synagogue and community services department. We now have boots on the ground all across the country, as you know, for oh, example, yeah. from your Atlanta broadcast. Oh, yeah. That was amazing. Uh, so one of the roles of those regional directors is to know every community organization and group within their region so that they can help facilitate these kinds of partnerships. So if a shul is looking to do a particular kind of program and there's a group in the city or in the region uh, that can help facilitate that, they'll make that connection and bring them together. Pretty amazing. What was incredible about our Atlanta journey was that thousands of listeners never even realized Forget Atlanta for a moment where people have heard that there's a Jewish community, but we had communities on where people didn't realize there was actually an Orthodox Jewish presence there, and that was uh, just one of the benefits. Um, all right, two last observations from me, and then, of course, if there's anything you'd like to add. Uh, the first is, and you may be the wrong person to ask this to because, uh, you know, obviously it's a, it's a subjective thing, but it, the impression is that as uh, narrow as Jewish organizations can be in terms of who they attract and who uh, they try to serve. It, it, the, the impression is that over the last five years, more people both right and left feel comfortable under the umbrella of the OU. From your vantage point, would you say that's a, that's a fact? I'm not sure that I can speak for the world. Right. Certainly, it's our desire to be as broad a tent as we can possibly be. Um, it's sometimes impossible to be so broad a tent that everyone fits. Right. Uh, we are, at the end of the day, an orthodox organization, and we begin and end our mission with Torah mitzvahs. Um, within that rubric, there's a lot of space, uh, and I think we've seen it expanding in, in, in every direction. But I, but I think the, the um, I, I think it's important to, to say that we have this fascination with labeling. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, 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 we love to, uh, to call ourselves modern, centric, Hasidish, yeshivish. <laughs> we don't know ourselves anymore. <laughs> and, and I think that's the key point, Nahum, is, is that those lines have become so blurred uh, in so many areas and in so many manifestations uh, that um, we're not defined, uh, any of us, uh, by the style of our dress or by the nature of our head covering. Uh, we're defined by what goes on in our hearts. Uh, and. I think within that, we're, we're seeing uh, uh, really enormous changes in, in, the, in the complexion of the community. Uh, uh, so that some of these fairly rigid and traditional definitions are very, very much breaking down. And so we're, we, we look to provide programming for Jews who want to be inspired certainly Jews who are committed to Torah observance, and we recognize our obligations to the enormous number of Jews who are out there who are not yet. 
And that's a very, very special obligation uh, that we feel we have. And if you look at many of our programs, the vast majority of their participants uh, are unaffiliated. Right. Pretty amazing. And finally, um, I, I say this to you every single time, but I, I also brought it up to you the moment you walked in here this morning. You have this, I, for whatever it is, whatever the blessing is, whatever the capabilities of the organization are that, that make this happen, you have the unbelievable privilege of not only being surrounded by some of the most talented people out there, and frankly, I can give you a whole list, if you wanted, of people I've met over the last few years, young and older, who are affiliated with the OU. Um, but it seems that every time a very talented person, not necessarily younger, but often yes, a talented person becomes available, you, like the good NFL franchise, <laughs> leaps on the free agent <laughs> and is able to bring them in and incorporate them somehow <laughs> In your team. So I would say now in 2019, your team is even better than it was over the last couple of years. Well, thank you. And I couldn't agree with you uh, more. It's the great joy of this job. It's the great privilege of, uh, of this job to come into contact uh, with so many, not only extraordinarily talented people, there are a lot of talented people out in the world. I've met many of them in my travels over the years. Um, but there are very few that combine their skill and their talent with such enormous passion for the Jewish people and dedication to mission. Uh, and, and that's what I find to be extraordinary. Uh, you know, for, for close to 40 years, I was working in a law firm, a firm that I ultimately came to, uh, uh, to manage, uh, and the motivations for people to excel in a profession, like right. the practice of law, are right. very, very different than the motivations for someone who is in communal work. Right. Uh, and we're blessed to have not only incredibly talented people, uh, but incredibly dedicated uh, uh, staff uh, who give their heart and soul. And I, I was saying to you just before we, uh, before we started, we're seeing this over and over among our young people in particular. Many who might have thought about going into the professions, being a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer or an accountant, are now thinking very seriously yeah, which is about going into some kind of communal work. We hear from them constantly. We see them constantly. Don't tell their mothers. <laughs> well, I think joke, that, just a traditional Jewish joke. <laughs> yeah, it, it it is. Although it's interesting because I think even the mothers are feeling very. They're very bending proud. a little bit on this. <laughs> they're, they're not just bending; they're feeling very, very proud that they've been able to raise children uh, who feel so deeply and so passionately about doing good things. Uh, and we are the we at the OU are enormous beneficiaries oh, of that pool sure. of talent. As is if, the Jewish community. If, yeah. if, if you want to see the community at its best, we run every year, we, we do uh, recruiting for NCSY advisors and Yachad advisors. Right. Um, when is signing season? When is that? Around, around it, now? It, it, it's usually right, <laughs> right after school starts. Ah, I got it. Right, right early, early September. <laughs> and, and part of that is we, we, we do a program at, uh, at Yeshiva University. For their undergraduates and uh, the young women from Stern, uh, come sort of and join like that program. Right. Uh, 
if you want to see 500 young people in a room, each one of them desperate to do something meaningful for the Jewish people, and you want to think about what's the future of our community going to look like, it's just sitting right there. It's unbelievable. And it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling to know that there are all of these fantastic and talented people out there who are prepared to share their time and their energy and their talent. All right, I know we're way over time, and I think I did promise to get you out of here after 20 minutes, so I am completely in violation. But but humor me for a moment. What's more fun, leading one of America's largest law firms or leading one of the most historic Jewish organizations, frankly, probably in Jewish history, I think we could say? Probably the thing that's most fun is taking care of my grandchildren. But, uh, <laughs> so babysitting is a good one, huh? <laughs> um, it's, 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 it's very, very different um, in some ways and very similar in others. Uh, uh, did did the, you wake the, up in the morning running to go to work the way you wake up in the morning running to go to work now? I think I wake up faster now. Right, that's to, what I would to, think. The, the, the satisfaction of, of, of knowing that we're building something uh, that will help sustain not only our community, but the totality of the Jewish people out into the future, I can't imagine anything more exciting and more rewarding. And describe the pressure, again, humor me, the pressure and stress of leading one of America's largest law firms. Is it, is it indescribable, the pressure and stress? You know, I, I was, I was um, the chairman of Proskauer uh, for, for six years, uh, and, and then in the management of the firm uh, uh, until I retired. Uh, probably the most stressful time uh, was during the economic downturn in '06, mm. '07, right. um, where I used to call myself the psychiatrist in chief. Uh, just dealing with the staff. Just dealing with with the staff, with the with with the lawyers in the firm who were who were facing enormous uh, uh, pressure, uh, and knowing that you were responsible for the livelihood of several thousand uh, people. Um, many of them type A personalities, uh, and trying to keep it all on an even keel, uh, I found that to be enormous, uh, enormous pressure. The, the pressure in this job is very, very different. Um, obviously, we're concerned about the livelihood of sure. our employees. Thank God uh, uh, they all get their paychecks on time. Um, but, but the pressure is different, and, and, and the pressure is... I, I wake up every morning and go to bed every night knowing that there's more that we could do and we can't. That there's one more kid out there that we can bring into NCSY and we haven't. That there's one more young adult out there that we can take on a birthright trip and we haven't. That there's one more college kid on campus who's going to get lost that we can bring in or bring back and we haven't. That's a very different kind of, of, of pressure. It's this constant feeling that as successful as we've been, that we're still failing. Um, and, and that God's going to be very unhappy with us because we didn't do it all. Yeah. 
and and that's a that's a pressure that uh, uh, is is very very difficult to uh, to describe. Uh, we're, we're delighted with what we've done, but we acutely recognize what we haven't. Unbelievable discussion. Uh, can't thank you enough. Wish you a big Mazel Tov after five years. Is this a uh, a term limited position, or is this one that, as far as the leadership of the organization goes, you could stay in for a while? It's. Uh, I think it's going to be term limited by my wife. <laughs> <laughs> the, the ultimate decisor. Huh? <laughs> the ultimate decisor. <laughs> but there's no. Uh, there's no, no end in sight. Let's put it that way, right? I'm not. Uh, I'm not so sure. I think at uh, at, at my age, um, I'm going to uh, uh, need to think about it uh, uh, very, very seriously. Wow. All right. Uh, with that in mind, I would think that you're you have a keen eye on some of the younger people out there who might have tremendous national leadership skills. I, I would I would hope, knowing the way you think, I would hope that that's always going through your mind. We think about succession planning constantly right. in in in, uh, in all of our operations. I think it's the uh, it's probably one of the most important tasks of a CEO and is, responsibility and responsibilities to make sure that leadership has has continuity. I think the the good news here is that the the organization is now on a very very firm, solid footing, financial and otherwise. Uh, our programs have expanded enormously, and uh, this is just a great opportunity for whoever ultimately um, uh, takes on my role, just a, a great opportunity not to have to clean up what's there, but to build on what's there and to continue this wonderful legacy. And the way you describe the, uh, I guess we'd call it the solid footing of the organization, I think the people around the country feel it. I think the people in the community uh, feel the difference between now and many years ago. So that's that's a good feeling, knowing that the average person out there is getting the idea that the uh, the OU is doing great work and really moving forward at a tremendous pace. Baruch Hashem. Alan Fagan, I thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you personally for everything and uh, for the recognition and role that you've given us here at NSN and uh, continued success uh, no matter how short or long your tenure continues as executive vice president. <laughs> Thank you very much. Nothing. More coming up. A very, very special Wednesday morning discussion with Alan Fagan, executive vice president of the OU for the past five years. I thank you all for tuning in. Keep it right here at JM in the AM. <laughs>